Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 8, as we read the verses 1 through 5. These words also form the text for the sermon. Let us hear the word of God. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, one of the chief marks of a true Christian is prayer. A Christian is someone who prays. He prays for himself, for his spiritual needs and his material needs. He prays for others, his children, his friends, the sick, the unsaved. He prays in the morning before he begins the day. He prays throughout the day and he prays at night before he goes to bed. He may not always actually bow his head and fold his hands and close his eyes. Sometimes he prays silently with his eyes open as he's going about his business throughout the day, but he's always praying. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 45, question and answer 116, says that prayer is necessary for Christians. And two reasons are given for this. First of all, because prayer is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us. And secondly, because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those only who with sincere desires continually ask them of him and are thankful for them. But did you ever wonder whether God hears our prayers? And did you ever wonder if prayer is effective? Do our prayers do anything? Do they actually serve a purpose? Well, we have an answer to these questions in the words of our text today in Revelation 8, the verses 1 through 5. These verses begin the third major section of the book. In the first section, chapters 1 to 3, Christ, as the Lord of his church, addresses each of the seven churches of Asia, which represent the church at all times and in all places. In the second section, chapters 4 to 7, the Lamb of God breaks the seven seals of the scroll that he took from the hand of him who sat on the throne. And now in the third section, chapter 8, verse 1, to the end of chapter 11, we have a description of the seven trumpets. Now you may remember the first six seals represent various judgments 
that will fall on the earth prior to the second coming of Christ. Well, now we come to the seventh seal. But rather than describe the glorious descent of Christ from heaven, the seventh seal focuses our attention on the prayers of the saints that culminate in his second coming. Before Christ returns, the saints are praying, and it is in response to those prayers that he comes. Well, with this in mind and God's help, let's consider the words of our text under this theme, the prayers of the saints before the throne. And we'll see that these prayers are, first of all, presented to an awesome God. Secondly, they are mediated by a gracious Savior. And thirdly, they are effective for a divine purpose. Our text chapter opens with a striking scene. Verse 1 says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. After all the noise of chapters 6 and 7, the noise of the tumults of the nations during periods of conquest, war and pestilence and economic upheaval, the cries of the martyrs under the altar and the panic-stricken shrieks of unrepentant sinners, and after the exuberant shouts of praise uttered by the saints and angels in heaven in chapters 4, 5, and 7, we have complete silence. Heaven is so silent, you could hear a pin drop. Now, this is not what we might have expected. We might have expected that after the opening of the sixth seal, which describes the day of God's wrath, John would have received a vision of the risen and exalted Christ coming to earth out of heaven amid the shouts and cries of the angels and the saints. But he does not do so. Instead, John remains in the throne room of heaven. And as he does, rather than hear the noise of a great earthquake and the sound of the trumpet and the shout of the archangel, he hears nothing at all. Only silence for about a half an hour. Now, there's something about silence that's quite moving. We pause for two minutes of silence at Remembrance Day. And we do so because silence affords us the opportunity to reflect. And it also shows respect for those who have died for our freedom. But here we have something extraordinary. All of heaven is silent for not two, but 30 minutes. Why this silence? Well, in the Old Testament, silence is a sign of an impending appearance of God, usually when he comes in judgment. Its purpose is to produce within us an overwhelming sense of awe. So, for example, in Zechariah 2, verse 13, the prophet cries, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Similarly, in Habakkuk 2, verse 20, the prophet writes, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in Zephaniah 1, verse 7, the prophet connects silence with the day of judgment. He writes, Be silent in the presence of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is at hand. And the day of the Lord, of course, is a reference to a day of judgment. 
And such is the case here as well. The opening of the seventh seal is met with silence as the entire world, even the angels in heaven, stand in awe before God. Anticipating the final judgments that will fall on the earth just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now it's in this context that the prayers of the saints arise to God. While all of heaven is silent, the saints' prayers reach the ears of God. And maybe you say, well, how can my feeble prayers and the prayers of all other believers actually reach the ear of God? After all, they're so weak and so feeble and so few. Well, this is all true, of course, and yet they do. And they are very effective. Why? Because they are mediated by a gracious Savior. And that brings us to our second point. As the period of silence came to a close, John writes in verse 2 that he saw the seven angels who stand before God. Now, who these seven angels are, we do not know. Some say this is a reference to the seven archangels of God. And this is based on one of the Jewish apocryphal writings, the book of First Enoch, which says that there are seven such angels, Gabriel, Michael, and five others. They even have names for them, Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Sariel, and Remiel. And this is confirmed by the fact that John uses the definite article when referring to these angels. He doesn't just speak of seven angels, but the seven angels, suggesting that they were an identifiable class of angels. Now, whether there are seven archangels or not, we cannot say. The only two that we, are know, that we know of is Gabriel and Michael. The number seven may simply be a figurative number referring to all of the angels, or that could simply be an ordinary, a reference to ordinary angels who were selected for a specific task. Well, whatever the case, to each of these angels were given seven trumpets. Now, trumpets produce a loud, piercing sound. That's why in the Old Testament, trumpets were used to summon the Israelites or to announce religious festivals to attract public attention, to warn of impending danger, to call soldiers to battle, or to praise God in the tabernacle and later the temple, among other things. You may also remember that they were used to cause the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down. Jericho was one of the first cities that the people of Israel captured upon entering the land of Canaan. You remember how that city was surrounded by great thick walls. Well, the people marched around the city of Jericho for seven days. And on the seventh day, they blew the trumpets. And on the, on the sound of the blowing of the trumpets, those thick walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Well, these trumpets in our text will do the same. For after each trumpet is sounded and the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, the great and wicked city of Babylon will be destroyed. We read about that later on in this book. Now, trumpets were also associated with divine activity. For example, they signaled the appearance of God, like when God appeared on Mount Sinai. They will also be heard at the second coming of Christ. But in this context, the trumpets are used to signal divine judgment, as we'll see in the following chapters. But before any of these judgments were sounded, something unexpected occurs. John tells us that after the seven angels were given the seven trumpets, another angel appeared and stood at the altar. Now from the Old Testament, we know that there were two altars in the tabernacle and later the temple of God, one outside and one inside. 
The outside altar was very large. It was located in the courtyard of the temple, on the right side of the entrance to the temple. And on this altar, the priests would sacrifice various animals to God. The inside altar was much smaller. It was located in the middle of the holy place, in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And on this altar, the priests burned incense. Now John sees a similar altar in the throne room of God. We first read about this altar in chapter 6, verse 9. It was under this very altar that the souls of the martyrs were kept, awaiting the final judgment. And it's from this altar that they cry to the Lord to avenge their blood. Well, this is likely the same altar. Now, whether there's an actual physical altar in the throne room of God, we don't know. It doesn't really matter. It's possible John here is simply using figurative language. But whatever the case, John says that an angel came and stood at this altar. And you'll notice what happened next. As the angel stood at the altar, we read that he took a golden censer. Now, a censer was usually a cup-shaped vessel on the end of a long handle or a bowl sitting on a pedestal. In Old Testament times, the priests used censers to burn incense. They would shovel up some burning coal from the altar, and then they would place incense on top of these coals. And this would cause the incense to smoke, filling the tabernacle or the temple with a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, the angel in our text does exactly the same as the priest did in the Old Testament. John tells us that to the angel was given not a little, but much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Now it's clear from this that the golden censer and the smoke arising from it represents the prayers of the saints. Well, who are the saints? Well, Roman Catholics define saints as exceptionally holy Christians who have died and gone to heaven. And because they're so holy, they've accumulated so much merit during their lives, they may hear and even answer our prayers. And this is why Roman Catholics pray to saints. But that is not how the Bible defines a saint. A saint in Scripture is simply an ordinary believer. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are a saint. This is why in several of Paul's letters, he will address the members of the congregation as saints. And that's the case here as well. The prayers of the saints are the prayers of ordinary believers here on earth. And these prayers are like smoke, in that just as smoke rises, so do the prayers of God's people. They rise from earth to heaven. But you'll notice that John makes a distinction here between the incense and the prayers of the saints. The function of the incense was to produce a pleasant aroma. The same is true for our prayers. In and of themselves, our prayers are unacceptable to God because they're full of sin and shortcomings. Our prayers are like the aroma of hot coals, which is more like a stench than a sweet smell. But when incense is added, 
the aroma becomes sweet. So what is this incense? Well, most commentators believe that the incense here represents the intercession of Christ. You see, when we're in Christ, then our prayers are mingled with his divine intercession. And that makes them acceptable to God and answerable by God. This is clear from Leviticus 16, verses 12 and 13. There we read that on the Day of Atonement, in the midst of the blood sacrifices offered for sin, the high priest was to take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He was then to put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Now what we have here is a picture of what Christ does for his people. He takes their prayers, he purifies them of all sin and shortcoming, and he presents them as a sweet-smelling sacrifice pleasing unto God. Now, isn't that wonderful? Beloved, if our prayers had to stand on their own merits, they would never be heard, much less answered by God. But they are heard. Why? Not because of anything in us, not because of anything in our prayers, because there is nothing, but because Christ is interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, verse 25, the writer of the Hebrews says as much. He declares there, that Christ is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So as our great and faithful high priest, Christ is interceding on our behalf in heaven. And since that is so, beloved, do not be discouraged about your prayers. If you're in Christ, they are mediated by Christ. And since that is true, we may also believe that they are effective, that God hears those prayers, and he will answer them as well according to his own will and time. And that brings us to our third and final point. After filling his censer with fire from the altar, the angel proceeded to throw the fire on the earth. Now this is the fire of the judgment of God that will come on the earth when Christ comes again. Fire often represents judgment, especially when it comes from God. So, for example, when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered strange fire to the Lord in their censers, the Lord sent fire from heaven to consume them. This was God's punishment on Nadab and Abihu for not worshiping him as he had prescribed in his word. But the fire mentioned in our text is a much greater fire. It is a fire that consumes the entire earth. Jesus referred to this fire in Luke 12, verse 49. There Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now Jesus here was referring to the fire of judgment that he would send on the earth when he comes again. And as such, it parallels the opening of the sixth seal in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. Now you notice what happens when God sends this fire on the earth. There are noises thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. All four of these are manifestations of the coming of God. You may remember when the Lord appeared on Mount Sinai, we read in Exodus 19, verse 16, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. 
And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And in verse 18, the same chapter, it says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Well, that's exactly what we see happening here. When God sends the fire of his judgment, there will be noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And what's especially significant is the fact that this fire is cast down in response to the prayers of God's people. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read about the martyrs under the altar. And they cry, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they're praying for vengeance. They're praying for God to avenge their blood. And here we see our Lord's response to that cry. He sends fire on the earth. This is reinforced by the wording of chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. You'll notice that in verse 2, the angels are given trumpets to blow. Then in verse 3, they're interrupted by an angel who comes forward to offer the prayers of the saints mixed with sweet-smelling incense. And it's only after these prayers have risen to God's throne that the angel casts fire on the wicked. And as we read in verse 6, the seven angels prepare to blow in the seven trumpets. And so what do we learn here? We learn here that prayer is effective. Sometimes we doubt that. We know that prayer is necessary, but deep down inside, at times, we wonder if it's really effective. Mostly because we don't see immediate results. Because of this, we tend to rely on our own activity rather than trusting in God. But, beloved, this is wrong. During the days of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army under the command of Sennacherib. At one point, Sennacherib sent a letter to Hezekiah demanding his surrender and mocking the God of Israel. And what did Hezekiah do? But he didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't send out his ambassadors to the surrounding nations to plead for help. He didn't summon the generals of his army to discuss how they might overthrow the Assyrians. He simply took the letter that Sennacherib wrote. He went into the temple and laid it before the Lord and pleaded with the Lord to do something. And the Lord did. And the next day, most of the Assyrian army lay dead on the hills surrounding Jerusalem, forcing Sennacherib to retreat in abject humiliation. Hezekiah's prayer is not merely a heartening story from the Old Testament. It is a statement of how God's people are to serve God's purposes in the world. And it's not by human might, but by the power of God, which is activated by prayer. Now, as I said, some have a hard time with that. And they question how this squares with the sovereignty of God. How can God be sovereign, they say, and at the same time act in response to our prayers? Well, I don't know. But this much I know, that both are true. God is sovereign and prayer is effective. In a way we cannot fully grasp, God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his own sovereign purposes. One writer puts it like this. He says, and I quote, God's sovereignty and prayer are never at odds. 
Since God is sovereign over both the praying of his people and the answering of their prayers, prayer is, in fact, an appeal to the sovereignty of God in accordance with the will of God. End quote. Another writer writes this, and I quote, God has not only decreed from all eternity what will happen, but he has also decreed that our prayers should be a means by which these things will happen. He has ordained the end, but also the means to the end. And prayer is a very important means. End quote. The point is our prayers are not useless. They are effective. They accomplish things. And in this case, they precipitate the very second coming of Christ itself. Christ comes in response to the prayers of his people. And since that is so, let us never neglect the means of prayer, beloved, especially not today. We live in an increasingly wicked society. Religious freedoms are under assault. Time-honored standards of morality and ethics are increasingly being thrown by the wayside or twisted to suit our selfish desires. And the pressure to conform to woke ideology is very strong. And what's the solution? Well, some have opted to form political parties or change existing ones from within or form lobby groups. Others have turned to the media or the courts and laid out their cases there. And all of this is legitimate. In fact, we must use the means available to us, but, beloved, never, ever, ever without prayer. And this is precisely what our text teaches us. It teaches us never to give up praying. Though prayer, through prayer, God saves and sanctifies sinners. Through prayer, he turns the hearts of kings and magistrates. Through prayer, he causes his kingdom to advance and brings about the realization of his redemptive purposes. Elijah prayed that it might not rain, and it did not rain for three years. He prayed again, and the heavens were opened, and the land was soaked with rain. And so, beloved, do not give up, nor be discouraged. Keep on praying, and wait to see what God will do. Amen. Dear friends, it's our great joy to be able to preach to you the Word of God every Sunday on this station if you are blessed by or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Would you please take the time to write us a short note? Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at bannerofTruth at frcna.org. And please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk, the former radio pastor of this program for many years, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. And we hope it may be a rich blessing to you and your family. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website at www.banneroftruthradio.com. That's www.banneroftruthradio.com. 
Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage again is banneroftruthradio.com. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.